Kajala Medical presents COVID-19 The Answers, the show that delivers the scientific evidence-based knowledge that can safely return us all to our pre-COVID lives. My name is Dr. Fumi Okanola, and I'll be hosting the show. Every week, you can listen to me interview a highly respected professional about the science that can reduce your risk of becoming infected with this coronavirus. This is a really important episode. Professor David Harris and his team at the University of Arizona in the USA have provided proof of concept of Dr. Michael Miller's research and advocacy of rapid testing as a means of reducing SARS-CoV-2 transmission of infection during the pandemic. They have also shown how the 360-degree solution to pandemic control can work in a real-life scenario by actively implementing most of the risk reduction methods, facilitating a path of living with COVID-19 safely whilst getting back to a form of normal life again on their campus. Hello and welcome to COVID-19 The Answers, Episode 8, Part 2, Accounts of Rapid Testing in the Field. Today, I'd like to introduce you all to Professor David Harris, PhD. Professor Harris is the Executive Director of the University of Arizona Biorepository, Professor of Immunobiology, Medicine, and of the B105 Institute at the University of Arizona in the USA. Professor Harris is a graduate of Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where he obtained a Bachelor of Science degree, cum laude, in biology, mathematics and psychology in 1978. He earned a Master's of Medical Sciences, summa cum laude, from Bauman Gray Medical School in 1980, and his Doctorate in Microbiology and Immunology, magna cum laude, from Bauman Gray Medical School in 1982. Professor Harris's research interests include stem cells and regenerative medicine, cancer research, and stem cell transplantation and gene therapy. He established the first cord blood bank in the USA in 1992. Welcome. Thank you very much for, for inviting me. David, out of interest and for the audience, could you please explain what a biorepository is and what is the B105 Institute? Sure. The, uh, a biorepository is a large collection of biospecimens like blood, sera, plasma, biopsies, tissue. In our particular instance, it's all clinical related, so we don't do animals or plants or only from, um, from patients. Uh, in our particular instance, it's clinically annotated biospecimens so that we have the electronic health records that go along with the specimens so we can look longitudinally to see what has gone on in terms of patient diagnosis, patient treatment, patient response, and correlate that with the biospecimens that we have in our facility. And essentially, the facility is a large collection of freezers and liquid nitrogen doers and, and other types of apparatus for storing those samples in an organized fashion so that we can provide them to individuals who are interested in research, as well as provide them with de-identified data that goes along uh, with those particular samples. Now, the Bio5 Institute is a sort of a consortium, um, a cross-disciplinary consortium of investigators at the university that um, goes through five different disciplines, which is clinical, plant, animal, research, um, and some others, molecular biology. Um, and they're sort of placed in one large building 
so they have an opportunity to run into each other and then potentially talk about collaborations um, and facilitate uh, the type of interactions that would normally come in a departmentally based uh, setting. We've talked about rapid testing with Dr. Michael Minner. Today, I want to show an example of how a program of mass testing worked in a real life situation. Between the fall of 2020 and April 2021, using a test, trace and treat strategy under the leadership of Professor David Harris, the University of Arizona went from 4% of people on campus testing positive for COVID-19 to less than half a percent. This corresponds to 4,172 people testing positive in August 2020 to four people in March 2021. The university be began the pandemic with 45,000 students and 20,000 staff working online to resumption of in-person classes with 100 people in attendance per classroom within seven months. This was a remarkable achievement because if you can remember, the COVID vaccines did not become available until December 2020 and a lot of national and international universities remained closed to in-person classes for up to a year or longer. On March the 11th, 2020, the World Health Organization declared the novel coronavirus COVID-19 outbreak a global pandemic. So David, could you please tell the audience what happened at the University of Arizona after that announcement and what you and your colleagues decided to do? Right. It actually seems it's a long time ago now. Um, you know, when you, when you talk about 4%, actually there was a time when it was above 11% uh, positivity at the beginning and then drop down below 1%. Um, but I can remember that that March of, of, 2000, of 2020, um, when the results were coming back from the, the rapid spread of the infection, um, the, the health consequences, the, the astounding number of deaths that were occurring. Um, we didn't really have any antivirals. We didn't have any real treatments, didn't have a vaccine. Um, so we're, we, like everybody else, was trying to decide what to do, and the university stepped in and decided to, to go to remote learning. As you didn't want to shut the university, but you actually couldn't take the chance of, of doing teaching in person. Um, so everything went to remote learning. Um, we at the biorepository were asked to come up with um, testing kits to be able to test the, the campus um, community. Um, so we spent a lot of time in the early days constructing PCR kits, collection kits, going out and, and collecting samples and looking at prevalence of the, of the virus in the community. Um, and that was the point where we decided that was not going to be uh, an easy way to mitigate the infection because it simply took too long to, to get results back. Um, and so we, we then spent a lot of time trying to decide what kind of rapid test we could, um, could develop or could implement to, to be able to get results back quickly. Um, because obviously, I don't think people realize that, you know, if you have no students, you have no money. If you have no money, you have no university, regardless of how many good people you have at the university. And so if you send everybody home um, and they're not paying for, for books or for rent or for their, their classes, um, essentially your universities can go bankrupt very quickly. Um, and we're talking of you know, tens to hundreds of millions of dollars per university that, that they're losing. And so we were trying to implement as, as much as possible a way to get classes open in, in some respect, 
And that's where we, we came up with this test and treat plan to be able to slowly reintegrate the, the community back so that we could have people on campus, individuals who were working in laboratories that would be able to come back. NIH grants would continue to, to go forward, um, but in a safe manner uh, to be able to, to protect those individuals who would be most likely to, to, to come in contact with the virus. Um, that unfortunately was my group at the beginning <laughs> when we say unfortunately, um, because uh, we didn't really know, um, you know, how serious that was going to be. Um, and so we, from March until today, uh, we've been at the university doing the, that sort of work. Fantastic. So, um, so in the fall of 2020, well, I, I, I thought it was 4%. You're saying actually 10%. Actually, it was over 11% at one point. Wow. You know, there was a couple of weeks, you know, when the kids were coming back that it got up over 11%. You know, it mirrored the, the surrounding community. Mm. You know, 90% of the, of the students live off campus inside of the, the, of the city's community. So you expect their incidents to be very similar. Uh, and it was at the beginning until we could go in and test and trace and emphasize to people, you know, how to take the precautions to, to prevent spread of the virus. Mm. So, I mean, so over 11% out of a population of 65,000. Um, uh, so at that time, SARS-CoV-2 had an R0 of two to three. So every yeah. one person infected would go on to infect another two to three people. Could you please give us some idea how quickly things would have got out of control without your test, ta test trace, treat strategy? Well, that was what we realized at the beginning. You know, we brought together epidemiologists, public health specialists, um, you know, the former Surgeon General of the United States, as well as the, the researchers on campus, to try to determine the best approach to try to mitigate. Um, it really simply wasn't enough to be able just to, to measure prevalence because the R0 uh, was so high that by the time, you know, you knew who was infected or not, they'd already infected other individuals. And so the idea was, how could we implement a testing strategy where we could get results back, you know, within an hour or so, so that an individual could come in, they could be tested, and they could be held sort of in isolation um, until the test results came back, you know, within the hour, and then you could then let them um, uh, go at that at that point. Um, so we looked around at that point because we needed to replace the PCR results, which you know generally would take 24 to 48 hours to get results back, um, even though you could if you could upscale it to be able to do thousands a day. It was just that lag time to be able to uh, to get results back. Um, and when you talk about 20 year olds, you know, that's a long time. So, you know, they don't want to be kept in isolation for, you know, 24 to 48 hours. So we looked at the rapid tests that were coming out at the time. Um, we evaluated uh, uh, various manufacturers. Uh, we went, went out and purchased tests to be able to, to do our own in-house validation. And we settled upon the Cadell rapid antigen test um, we liked it for a variety of reasons. You could get results within 15 minutes, but more importantly, it was designed to, to scale up so that we could do the thousands of tests today that we needed to. It was connected to the to the web so that we could upload data into patient um, records. So you know their test results would be in their electronic health record, um, and we could download the data into our own databases to to be able to to, to follow um, the course of the of the infection. Um, and see how infected individuals were. Um, so we decided on that, and that was a strategy we set up during that, 
that first summer. You know, so when you think about it, you know, of, of that first you know, spring semester, everybody was still sort of fumbling through it, um, trying to do the best we could. It wasn't until we got into the summer uh, that we could take the, the strategy that I talked about. We first implemented it with the athletic teams that were at the university, the football team, the basketball team, you know, sort of on a small scale. We're only dealing with hundreds of people. How would that work? You know, how many days a week did you have to test? How quickly did you have to get test results back? So that when the kids came back in the, in the fall of that, that year, uh, we were set up to be able to test thousands a day. And so we decided on the strategy of test everybody as they came back to campus, get the results back to them. So we were testing two to 3,000 a day. I get results back to them immediately. Those that were infected immediately pull out in quarantine. Those that weren't, you were allowed to go to their dorm, come back to the class, uh, come into a research lab, um, and then implement a strategy where, okay, you're, you're not infected today, but what about tomorrow? And so it was the strategy of testing once a week going forward to be able to catch those individuals who previously were, were naive and now had become infected um, before it could get out of control. And part of that had to do with tracing so that if we knew that you were positive, we don't know who you talked with the last, you know, the last couple of days. And so through a de-identified smartphone app, we could tell when your smartphone get, got close to another smartphone, uh, although we didn't know who owned the smartphones, but we could tell the other smartphone that you just were around an infected person and you should get tested. And that allowed us to, to, to trace those individuals and encourage them to, um, to take uh, steps to protect their own health. Um, and then we followed that up by doing wastewater testing of the individual dormitories and congregate settings where it was not really feasible to go in and do that uh, every day, uh, but at least to give us sort of an idea of is there virus present in the building and how much virus. And then we could go in and, and, and target those areas like the fifth floor of the dormitory or the cafeteria, you know, clean that out. Uh, test all those individuals and then re-educate them as to best ways to prevent infection. So um, it was a multi-pronged approach um, that that really, uh, you know, I can't emphasize enough that really um, depended upon um, the, the sort of the push or the motivation of, of higher administration because um, it takes a lot of people uh, and it takes a, a lot of money uh, and a lot of effort to be able to, to do that. Uh, where a lot of the universities were simply closing their doors and going home or just going online. Um, you know, our, our university made the decision that we would actually try to stay as true to a normal university as possible. Uh, and through federal funding, uh, you know, for mitigation uh, and for testing, we were able to, to do that um, in a much better extent uh, than many of the, our fellow universities, both here and, and elsewhere, were able to do. It was an amazing feat, really. Uh, you know, it's something that needs to be emulated globally, in my opinion. Um, that's why I'm featuring it, the, um, uh, your whole experience on this podcast. So you've really told the whole story, but I'm going to go through. <laughs> um, I'm going to go through a series of questions that kind yeah. of expand on on what you've what you've said. So you, you and your colleagues devised a timeline um, for the University of Arizona to get back to full in-person learning. Can you please describe this to the audience? So the, so the idea was, um, you know, when, when your infection rates were high up in the 10, 11 percent, 
Um, obviously, everything is closed down other than the, the essentials, like, like the testing laboratories. And what you want to be able to do is, is as people come to campus, and there was requirement, if you want to come on to campus for any purpose, whether it was research, classrooms, work, whatever, you had to be tested. Um, and then you had to be follow-up tested you know, through the course of, of the year. And so the idea was if we could, you know, find the infected individuals at, at first glance when they came on, we could isolate them and provide them with all the necessary things they needed, like, you know, internet access, meals, that sort of thing, um, until they recovered. Um, and we needed to be able to do that fairly rapidly. And so that was where the, the rapid test came in, you know, that we could, uh, we could set up a testing um, uh, venue over in our student union where we could handle thousands of people a day. Um, some of them would get PCR just to give us an idea of the prevalence, but the rest would get a rapid antigen test to, to look for a mitigation strategy. Um, and, our, and what our results, our papers had shown was that, you know, PCR was great for detecting uh, the virus, but it's not great for telling you who's at risk of infecting others because it's so sensitive. Um, so we were using PCR as sort of a prevalent strategy you know, where is it or where has it been? What should we be looking for? Uh, and that goes with the wastewater uh, testing as well. And we used the rapid antigen test because we and others had shown that uh, it doesn't pick up everybody who's positive, but it picks up the ones who are contagious. Uh, and that's what we were concerned about is to isolate those who are contagious um, and then let them recover. And once they recover, they'll still be positive by PCR, which is a problem because they're no longer have active virus. Um, and that's where the, the antigen test came in. So, you know, we did, we just looked at it the other day, probably during that, that time period, well over 300,000 tests. Uh, and so when you think, you know, every one of those tests costs $23, mm. you know, that's a, a tremendous investment to be able to keep the university open by the university, um, as well as, you know, not, not even counting the personnel costs that, that are involved. So um, we made that decision that, if we could keep them um, as as uninfected as possible, and, and that worked out pretty well, or at least find them pretty quickly, uh, we could see the infection rates come down, and that's what we saw over the over that that year uh, was that the infection rates, you know, gradually got down to where they were below what you would find out in the community, which was still averaging in the seven eight percent range, um, and we were well below one percent. Um, so the, the education actually worked because they were still out living in the community. There still was no vaccine at the time or antivirals. Um, but I think they had taken it to heart, you know, that if you do something stupid and people will, uh, you will get infected. We will catch you when you come on campus and you'll no longer be able to go to class or go to the lab or do the other things, you know, that, that you're paying to do as a college student. So I think that was sort of the, you know, the stick and the carrot thing that, you know, we expect you to act like adults, but if you don't, then we we, we will catch you uh, during the testing. Yeah, I mean, you know, the whole program was ingenious, frankly. Um, uh, it's something, as, I, as I've, I've said, I'm repeating myself, that needs to be emulated. So, yes, there were costs. Um, but the costs of uh, that that you um, the costs of implementing the strategy were far below the costs of loss, and I think that's what people 
uh, struggle with getting their head around. You have to pay for things like testing, air filtration, ventilation, whatever, um, in order to stay open so that in the long run, you don't economically lose and also so that you keep your population safe. So you've, you've really shown here a true proof of concept. Well, you know, I think, you know, when we looked at this early on before implementing, we were expecting the university that year would lose somewhere upwards of 40 to $60 million. Uh, and it turned out at the end of the year with doing this type of, of strategy, uh, we still lost money, but it was less than $10 million. Wow. You know, now we're to, you know, it's kind of like monopoly money. Oh, it's only mm -hmm. $10 million. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, so, I mean, it really did cut, you know, our expected losses. We still lost, but not as much as if we'd done nothing. Mm -hmm. And more importantly, it, it sort of showed the, the, the students and the staff and the faculty that the university was, was concerned about their health, was making every effort. And so people were more willing um, to come back. Because you know, then, you know, people get to the point where they go, well, if I'm doing everything online, you know, why pay all the money to, to do that? You know, why not go somewhere else? But here they could actually start to come back uh, and the classes would open up in small numbers. Uh, first, essential laboratories, then small classes, you know, where you had 25 or 30. Then you would have classes of 50 to the point finally you get to full uh, size classes where there's no restrictions. Yeah. Excellent. But it was it was phased in and there were metrics that had to be met. And if you didn't meet the metrics, you could go backwards or forwards, depending on on what the results were. Mm. So how did you get the university staff and students on board with your your plans? Could you tell us about things like the dashboard of testing results? Well, the dashboard is is sort of the, the community facing the public facing um website to be able to show what's going on at the university, what the infection rates are, you know, because parents are concerned about their kids as, as well as the, the students themselves are concerned. And then you have um, the interaction with the state uh, officials, you know, the governor, the public health, that sort of thing. So the, the dashboard is more or less set up to show what's going on on a day-to-day real-time basis. Are we having a surge like out in the community or, or are we doing well? Um, so that was good PR that, that worked very well. People went to that. We held press conferences with the president every day, you know, during the hot, during the, the high part of this, um, so that he would answer questions with uh, the media and, and with the government. Um, you know, that we did a lot of, of outreach to the students over that summer to say, you know, we're going to open back up. This is how we're going to do it. This is how you're going to do you know, the testing, et cetera. And if you want to, we, we can't make you. But if you want to live in the dorm, if you want to come back on campus, you want to see your friends again, these are the things that you're going to have to do. And, you know, if, if you get infected, we've got a dorm over here that we'll move you into for the next 10 days, you know, provide you with your internet, provide you with your meals, everything you would if you were in your own dorm. And when you recover and test out, you can go back, you know, knowing that, um, you know, you're, you're actually have some immunity and you should be okay. Um, so again, it's, it's sort of a stick and carrot that, you know, here, do you want to come back? Here's how we're going to do it. Um, and then the most important thing was the dashboard would show that it was working. And you know, so I think that's key. I mean, you don't want to be draconian about it and then, and then have it not work. Uh, it actually showed that, you know, with these sort of reasonable uh, interventions, uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, you could actually see that the, the case rate was going down, hospitalizations were going down, you know, deaths were going down, um, and, and, you know, people didn't start to believe it. 
So you you basically showed openness um, and honesty, um, and that's how you got people on board um, participating and edu- and you educated them. A lot of outreach, you know. I think obviously, you know, you, you know this is a a community that, that's always very open. The, the university community, you know, people talk a lot. They they want to be, you know broadcast their, their findings or results. So if you tried to hide it, it was not going to work, you know? So, and particularly, you know, the people who work for me and for some of the other places, things were going badly. That meant we were at risk of getting sick and or having you know, bad outcomes. So we definitely weren't going to hide it. If things were going south, we'd know it very quickly. And we would say, Hey, you know, let's close up shop. And maybe we do have to, you know, to, to sit it out for a while. Luckily that never happened. Good. The next stage of your program, you've, I mean, you touched on this, was a decision of who to test and when. So different groups of students pose different risks of infection to themselves and others dependent on their activities. Can you please share how you identified groups to be tested and the frequency of testing? You know, it goes back to our, our first um, proof of concept with the athletic teams. You know, we had the football team, which had, you know, a couple hundred people on it. And we broke those up into small pods. You know, we had seen what had gone on at the University of Alabama, where all their players would congregate together to do their weightlifting, their training, that sort of thing. And when one ended up getting sick, they infected 50 or 60 others. And so then everything shut down. So we broke them up into small manageable groups of 10. And they stayed with their pod of 10 uh, as we followed them through the summer and did testing you know, almost every day for these people. Um, so we could show that, you know, if you if you would test in the groups, um, you could quickly find, you know, who was going to be positive or who was going to be uh, a problem. Um, and, and that was sort of the approach that, that we took was that um, high congregate settings like dormitories or like the cafeteria, um, those are your highest risk places. And so you have to go in and test everybody. And you have to test them every, you know, every other day. Uh, for those who lived off campus after we initially did the screening, um, you know, they only generally were seeing two or three other people, you know, whether it was their girlfriend or their spouse or, you know, uh, uh, their roommates. There you could test them about once a week. Um, and if you had three or four people and they would test on different days, you could sort of cover the entire apartment by, by doing that kind of testing. Uh, and then you could back this up by doing random PCR testing out in the community to see if there are any hot spots. And then you could do the wastewater testing uh, because if somebody uh, in the building uh, was infected, it would show up in the wastewater that's highly sensitive. And so you could, again, use this as sort of a preview. Um, and this was always, you know, the goal was to, was to, to know what was going on before it got to the hospitals. Um, because the hospitalization rate was, was, you know, somewhere around two weeks behind the infection rate. And then the deaths were another, you know, 10 days or so behind that. Um, so if you merely were tracking hospitalizations or admissions, um, you were really behind the curve uh, in trying to, to get a handle on how to mitigate the, this, uh, this course of disease. Mm, ingenious um, whole method. Your whole method of organisation and approach to this was truly excellent. Could you also talk about the importance of turnaround time with relation to the time you would aim to de- to deliver a result in this population? Well, that was, that was the the key thing was that 
you know, if you if you tell the kids when they come back to class and before they come, you know, to the move into the dormitory, we're going to test you. You have to be negative. You can't tell them, but you're going to have to wait somewhere for two or three days till we get the results. So, um, not only is that unfair, but it's it's impossible with you know 18 to 20 year old people. Um, and so that's where the rapid test comes in. If you can scale it up, uh, where you can do thousands of tests a day. So. You know, each of our dormitories, you know, holds you know somewhere between two and, and five thousand kids. Um, so we could bring the entire dorm in on a Monday, test them all, get the results back. You know, if we if we staggered them, each of them would have results back uh, within the hour, and so they would know. And so uh, when they would test with with our um, approach, uh, if there was a positive result, it notified the students so that you know they and their parents knew that they were infected. It notified campus health so they could immediately go and isolate and then see if they needed to, to have some sort of health care. And it notified the, the university to, to know don't let them in the dorm room uh, or don't let them in a congregate setting because they're infected or vice versa. All the you know, everything's all clear. And it's ready to go. So that was sort of the, uh, the key thing there so that we could bring in about 3000 a day. Um, and through the course of you know an eight-hour day, we could test all those and get everybody's results back to them within an hour, uh, which allowed them to stagger, you know, come in and be tested immediately, go uh, into the dormitories. Yeah, it's fantastic because I read somewhere in your literature that um, with the student population, you could have one person who came into contact with up to 200 people within a 24-hour period. So you had this kind of mantra, didn't you, that 24 hours to deliver a result to a, a student population is too late. It yes. needed to be delivered sooner. Well, and that's, you know, when we looked at this, and again, it's all done in a de-identified fashion so that, you know, we can track a cell phone, but we don't know who the phone belongs to. Um, you would find that there are, in reality, social butterflies. You know, the majority of people on campus, you know, come into contact with five or six people a day. But then there are others who come into contact with hundreds a day. You know, those are the social butterflies. And those are the ones you're really worried about, because if one of them is positive, they could essentially infect. And, and we saw that from our own experience, that um, one of my technicians, I had a family member pass away due to something else. And so they went to the funeral. This was the, during, you know, 2020. Um, and one of his relatives uh, was not feeling well, but didn't want to miss the funeral and came. And she infected 23 others. Oh. She was positive and, and resulted in deaths as well. Um, so, you know, in a congregate setting with somebody who's hot, um, it's not just two or three, like you said, with an R zero of two or three. I mean, you know, you go around and you hug and kiss you know the people at, at the at the uh, at the uh, event. You could easily get you know a super spreader event. So we were concerned about those those individuals who are those social butterflies. Uh, but you're also concerned that you know if one person gets five or six others, they get five or six others, um, and the window between getting exposed and showing up as infected is probably three days. Um, and so that's where we sort of made the decision to stagger the repeat testing to make sure if we missed it on day one, we'd catch it again by day four if they were truly uh, infected. And, you know, back then, as we've said, the R0 was two to three. And with Omicron, with, we're looking at an R0 of eight to 15. You can see how quickly and why it spreads, you know, so devastatingly across the planet, really. Yeah, and, you know, part of that also is the, is the fact that, you know, 
Um, the uptake on the vaccination was less than hoped for or expected based on the on the demand for it you know, when it was being developed. Um, and the more unvaccinated people you have, the more likely you are to develop variants. Uh, you know, because I think if more people had vaccinated, you wouldn't have Omicron. Or if Omicron had happened before the original one, uh, the Wuhan strain, this sort of mitigation effort would have been more successful. Now people are so pandemic fatigued, they you know they really are not concerned. You know they see that it's not any anymore. It may in fact be less, you know, virulent than the original strain. Um, and so they've they more or less, if you haven't been vaccinated, they've given up. You know the the sort of the the fight. Mm. Okay, um, that's another <laughs> debate that we'll have at another time. Yeah. Um, so exploring what you did. So what incentives, I mean, that's a good point, actually, to bring in this question. What incentives did you build into the strategy to encourage people to keep getting tested when they need to? How did you overcome pandemic fatigue? Well, I mean, early on in the testing phase, you know, the, you know that first year, there wasn't fatigue. There was a story in the paper every day or on the news every day about people dying, and we saw lots and lots of them dying in, in the ICU. Um, and so people were very concerned. They were very afraid. They weren't necessarily going to get vaccinated, but um, there wasn't the fatigue, you know, the, the, the fighting against wearing masks and that sort of thing. Now, again, what you're fighting against with with the younger population is um, the short-sightedness of I'm negative today. That means I'll be okay tomorrow. And you try to get them to say, you know, this is just a point in time. Tomorrow may be different or two days from now may be different. Um you know, it's, but if you're living in a dorm, you had no choice. Um, you know, if you didn't get tested, you know, every couple of days, um, you could get expelled from the dorm and you would lose your money. And you weren't giving your money back if you didn't follow the rules. If you wanted to be in a lab or on campus, you had to do the testing. What it was, was you wanted to, to have those who only occasionally came on, maybe once every couple of weeks, uh, who were doing most of their, their learning from home. You wanted to get them tested. And that's where um, these sort of motivation strategies of, you know, bookstore discounts, um, you know, tickets to the, the basketball games. Um, there was a few grand raffles of where you would get a tuition for the semester free, that sort of thing, uh, and a raffle to try to keep people going. And, and during that first year, um, that worked very well. Uh, I think between, you know, the fear um, and the, 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 the motivational strategies, um, it wasn't a big deal. It's only as it gets into the second year, um, you know, and, and you notice that, you know, people don't want to, some people don't want to get vaccinated and they don't want to take, make efforts um, to, to protect themselves that they become concerned. So. Right. Interestingly, for your PCR test, you used a saliva direct protocol with the saline gargle from British Columbia in right. Canada, which you found more accurate and faster than a conventional nasopharyngeal PCR test, another proof of concept. We interviewed Dr. Anne Wiley last week about the evolution of this protocol. Are you able to tell us about your experience with this? So one of our um, investigators, researchers, Michael Warby here, comes from British Columbia, and so he knows all the all the people up in British Columbia and has worked with them. Uh, and so the idea was, you know, so what we did uh, when we were doing proof of concept and we were comparing antigen tests with PCR tests, it was all NP swabs. You know, we tried to do um, throat uh, swabs. We, we tried to do nasal swabs. We tried to do cheek, 
just to do anything other than NP because people hate to do NP swabs. Uh, it's just uncomfortable. Uh, and it's also dangerous to the individuals who are making the collection. So we taught thousands of people how to do their own NP swabs. And, you know, so that I said, you know, I don't know how long your nasal cavity is. So if I just stick that back in there, I may injure you. You can slide it back. It, it won't feel bad, but it'll feel better than if I did it for you. But then, you know, the, the publication of the Wish Gargle, um, Saline Gargle came out. Um, Michael Warby brought it back to us. We evaluated it compared to MP. Uh, turned about uh, turned out to be just as sensitive, if not a little bit more. I think it depends on what day in the infection you do that. Um, and so people were very compliant with that, you know, to switch you know, a little saline around in their mouth and spit it into a tube. Um, it was very easy to implement that. And so that that really helped in terms of the PCR testing. Now, people didn't try to cheat on the test. They didn't try to skip their test. They were quite happy to come in and swish a little saline around in their mouth and, and get the test results. Yeah. And you combine that with the saliva direct protocol because in, in, in BC, we still use the traditional um, RT-PCR, but right. you combine that with the, the new protocol that Ann Wiley developed. So you have the best of both worlds, that speed and accuracy. Right. And we had to validate all of that. And, and again, you know, when you're doing those things up front, they have to be validated. They have to be approved by you know, the CAP and the CDC to, to let you do that diagnostically. Um, so it's not something that you can turn around and do overnight. Um, but I think, you know, having this research community together, we would meet three times a week, you know, to try to decide, you know, what's going on in a different university or state or a different country. And, you know, what have you heard so that we can start to look at some of these things very early on. Uh, and if something looks like it could be promising, we can start to validate it so that it doesn't take us six months to, to turn around, but maybe just, you know, three or four weeks. And I think that that was key. Yeah. Uh, again, that needs to happen in the real world. And, and, and that enabled you to have a much faster turnaround time with PCR. Oh, yeah. So it cuts you know, a good 24 hours off of, of the uh, time frame so that, you know, since you don't have to go through and, you know, and do the isolation of, of the message beforehand, but you can immediately go to, to do an amplification. It's tremendous. Yeah. You lose a little bit of sensitivity, maybe one or two cycles on the PCR, but that does seem to, to have impacted the biological significance of the assay. Yeah, I still fail to understand why that isn't so, uh, so much more widespread. There's a difference between being infected with SARS-CoV-2 and infected and contagious. You've touched on this. Right. That it's important to isolate a contagious person as they can spread the virus to others. An infected person who is no longer contagious will not spread the virus. PCR tests are notorious for giving positive results for weeks after a person is no longer contagious. Could you please explain to the audience what a CT value is and how you use these values to, alongside rapid antigen tests to identify contagious people and isolate them? You know, so CT values are, I mean, are the way that you determine how much virus is present when you do a PCR test. So cycle uh, time. So it have, do you have to go through the assay, you know, 10 times, 20 times, 30 times before you uh, can detect the virus? And obviously the easier or the sooner you can detect it, the more virus there is. So uh, a CT value of 30 means there's very little virus, but a CT value of 10 means there's a whole lot of virus. Um, Complementary to that, you, we also get similar values on the antigen test so that we can determine uh, 
know, how much virus is present when you do the um, uh, the rapid test. So you know, what what we were concerned with, and it came from our proof of concept, was that we had we had a couple of people during the athletics contesting who tested positive week after week after week for months. Um, you know, and so only by PCR, because if we tested them with nasal swabs or NP swabs, but it was with, with PC swabs, like, or with the NP swabs and PCR, they kept testing positive. And, and surely, you know, the, if you're positive for this virus six months, you should be dead. I mean, it's not that <laughs> you continue to be virally infected. Um, and so, and so it you know, for whatever reason, it's an unusual RNA virus with an envelope that may hang around for a while. Or there may be some cross-reactive proteins in your body that that happen, but um, again, it, it's sort of pointed out that it's the PCR test is so sensitive um, that it's great for looking at prevalence testing, but it's not great for mitigation um, because then you're isolating people who aren't infected. Now, on the other side, you know, with the antigen test, um, you may get a false negative. Um, but if you test two days later, you'll you'll find that person will show up as positive. What you're concerned about is the false positive, that somebody tests positive, but they're actually negative. Um, and then you isolate them in a big dorm full of real positive people, and then they might get sick. Um, and so we put together a, a testing strategy that allowed us to identify the false positives um, by, by using a, a threshold of how how positive you had to be on the antigen test to really be a positive. Um, so we were able to eliminate false positives um, and use that as our you know, strategy for looking at who was contagious. And then we could use the PCR for looking at where the, the virus has been and where we think it, it may be next. So with CT values, I, I think you had a, a cutoff of that. Your CT value was um, uh, below 30, then you were contagious. Right. And that would often correlate with the positivity of the antigen test because they work during it. They, they register positive when you're actually contagious. They won't right. tell whether you've ever been infected. And then if your, PC, uh, your CT value was above 30 on PCR, then even if it kept testing, you kept testing positive on PCR, you would know that that person's no longer contagious. Right, and we looked at that in terms of trying to isolate live virus from these individuals. We could never get live virus to, to, to isolate or grow out of people with CT values above 30. Um, that helped us to, to make that decision because it's not something we make lightly, you know, that you're infected but you're not or contagious. Um, that we could actually you know, have real data to show if you had a CT above 30, um, you had been infected, you're now recovered or, or almost recovered, you're not a concern to, to the public, uh, whether it's grandma, if you see them at home or your roommate, you know, in the dorm. Um, but if you're under 30, then yes, um, we were concerned and we wanted not only to, to pull you out of, of the community, but we actually want to put you in a place where we can watch you to see if you have a bad outcome. Um, because, you know, if you start to go south, uh, we want to be able to intervene. And, you know, if we don't know who you are or where you're at, we can't do that. Mm, fantastic. What did you learn from the whole experience? Can you summarize the important points that you learned? Well, you know, I, I think, you know, collaboration of people who have, have uh, 
multidisciplinary expertise really was sort of key to this. Um, that actually has allowed us to set up what we call the Aegis Institute um, at the university to, in expectation of the next pandemic. We expect that either this one will continue somewhat or there'll be another one. So, you know, everybody has different expertise. And if you're able to bring them to, to collaborate and work together, you can do a lot of, of, of incredible things. Um, you know, the, the, the test, the treat, the trace is sort of key. It's, it's not a cheap endeavor, um, but it really does make, a, I think, a, a significant difference uh, by being able to, to do that sort of thing. So um, we think, the, you know, the, the testing obviously tells you who's infected or not, who might be contagious. You know, the, the tracing to let you know who they might have been exposed to or exposed uh, themselves to. Um, so that we can now know who needs to, to be isolated and or treated. And I think that that's the other thing as well, is we want to make sure that uh, we identify those who might have a bad outcome and try to, to you know, take advantage of, of that early uh, decision, be able to say, okay, we think we can help you um, through our, our approach. So where are you now? How did COVID vaccination change your approach to reducing the risk of infection on campus? Well, you know, we've done a lot of vaccination and we've probably done now, again, over 300,000 vac vaccinations because we, we are the biobank or the biorepository is also the, uh, the place that receives, uh, distributes and, and tracks uh, the vaccination um, in our um, our, uh, our community. Um, so we're at the point now where the university is back to 100%. No masking now is required, um, even indoors, um, because the infection rate is well below a half percent. Uh, and part of that, and that's also true of the community. So if the community goes above, I want to say it goes above a half percent or so, we would have to go back to masking indoors. Uh, but at present, you know, both the university and the community have such low uh, positivity rates, whether it's true infections or breakthrough infections, um, that we're no longer required, even in the community as well as on campus, um, to have masking. Uh, some people do, and I'm sure some people will continue to, to do that for a long time. Um, but we're continuously monitoring um, on campus, as well as wastewater, as well as in the community, just to try to be ahead of the curve if there is a surge coming. Um, but at, at this point, after two years, uh, either from caution, vaccination, or infection, we think probably 80% of the people have been exposed in one fashion or another. Um, and that probably helps to explain why uh, we can now get back to almost, you know, what it was before uh, pre-pandemic. So, so what's the vaccination rate on COVID vaccination rate on campus at the University of Arizona? Of the students, <laughs> this is completely opposite of what I thought. You know, the students is probably 85% or higher. Um, you know, the people who I thought would be most at risk, you know, which would tend to be, you know, faculty and staff, you know, it's probably 60%. Um, and what's the rate of vaccination in the wider community outside of the university? It's about 60, 65%. Okay. So are you still rapid testing and PCR testing 
Yeah, but just not at the numbers. So um, most of it is um, if if there is a surge or if there is an outbreak, we'll go in and specifically test those areas, like say the athletic teams, um, or it's volunteer testing. Somebody says, you know, I was away for spring break or I came back, you know, from visiting you know, so-and-so and my throat is sore today. I'll get a test um, before I go on the campus. Um, but the mandatory testing is is no longer required. And 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 that's and another important question that I forgot to ask: Was the testing always free for the students? Oh yeah, um, right. That's and, where the university spent all that money was yeah. for you know the free testing. Because uh, again, if you had to pay to to go through an MP swab, you probably wouldn't show up to to do it. So we wanted to make it as you know we had testing sites all over campus. Want to make it as easy to do it as is free to do it and you'll get the results back rapidly so it was an extremely convenient and, and easy process yes and do you have any other mitigation um methods in play do you have anything like air filtration ventilation yep. so all the the air supplies going into the buildings is through hepa filters uh, we have what's called a germ buster team that that goes out as part of facilities. Anytime there's a positive infection in a in a building, a room, or a dorm, they go out and and sanitize. Um, there is a um, a team of individuals who will then uh, escort you know positive individuals over to the quarantine facility so nobody else is exposed. So there is quite a bit of of um, of thought in terms of how to uh, to make this work. Um, you know, with such a large space, um, particularly once you're outside the classroom, it's you know, extremely difficult um, to to do much if people won't wear masks. And that's really where, you know, the, the masking rate was extremely good in that first year, year and a half. Well, um, in my opinion, I mean, you've created a fantastic infrastructure, uh, reducing the risk of infection to this coronavirus, which is incredibly important because, you know, up to a third of people can go on to develop long COVID or uh, post-acute sequelae, which really results in organ damage. I mean, all the right. research that's coming out now with even one infection, I mean, vaccination is thought to possibly reduce that risk by half, but that's just still huge numbers of people. So you've really put a whole infrastructure in place that is protecting people from chronic um, illness. In my opinion, your whole team should be running the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we have one of those, those uh, recover grants to look at long COVID. So um, you know, I think we're supposed to look at 9,000 and you know, I think overall they're looking at a hundred thousand or something, but, um, we do think that vaccination definitely does decrease the, the risk of developing long COVID, but, you know, and that's sort of the emphasis you know, to tell people that you're young and healthy and probably won't have a bad outcome. You know, I know, I've known a few who've had bad outcomes, um, but a bad outcome is something other than death. A bad outcome is, you know, lose 20 IQ points or have a bad liver or have, you know, cardiovascular problems. Those also are bad outcomes, you know, particularly if you're a 20 year old and you're gonna spend the next 80 years with this problem. Um, and, and that's been sort of a difficult um, sell um, to, to convince people that there are bad outcomes other than dying from the, the virus that you should be concerned about.
Yes, and I don't think it's been highlighted enough in the media. I think we need to have um, really long COVID, post-acute sequelae uh, results uh, rates posted as well as hospitalization rates and death rates so that people understand that this is something that's that can really do damage and they need to protect themselves from infection i mean that's the whole point of this series to highlight cases like yours and the technology that's out there to keep people safe from chronic disease yeah i think with you know, after the first year or so of, of these nih grants to look at the long COVID, we'll have a better idea of, of what the the rate is for for that and it probably is going to depend on you know a variety of of patient demographics as well as viral loads and things like that so it's, you know we've seen it reported anywhere from three percent to thirty percent so there's uh, there's other factors in there that we haven't identified yet but it i mean there's still going to be enough people who get it that it's a problem otherwise the nih wouldn't be spending you know, almost a billion dollars to look at this um so you know again um People don't want to hear bad news anymore, so I understand, but uh, we're going to have to develop, you know, better outreach or at least strategies that we can can educate without scaring. Yes, and, and you know what? I think what you've achieved is actually good news. You've proved that with the right infrastructure, um, incredibly intelligent and clever people motivation and actually caring that we you can get back to some form of near normal life safely um, by putting all of those mitigation factors in place i think that's what's really key about this 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 whole experience yeah i i agree and i think again you know i i have to always give give uh, thanks to you know to our upper administration started with the president that he was willing to, you know, to make that investment and spend those dollars and and to put in the effort, and he was in on many of our our weekly meetings, um, just to to get this going. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, it starts at the top and goes all the way down, you know, to to the students. So um, all of them have to be willing to to do it. Yes. So when you say president, you mean president of the university, don't you? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I'm just going to share something very quickly with you because we're nearly um, running out of time because I'd like the audience to see this. So this is the 360 solution to pandemic control. Um, and you and I have talked about this before that I think needs to be Im implemented globally. We won't get out of this pandemic by boosting our way out of it through vaccination. Vaccination is the most important mitigation, mitigating um, uh, tool that we have for COVID-19, but it's not the only one. And I think you've proved that. And you really now you've, I would say you've um, done proof of concepts of 90% of this. You had regulator support with your president, a testing strategy, wastewater monitoring, an infrastructure that you created. You provided support um, during isolation, contact tracing, education, and now the environmental mitigation with, you know, the air filtration and ventilation that you've implemented and you've pushed vaccination. So, you know, it's incredibly commendable what you've done. I appreciate that. And luckily it worked. I mean, that was... It, and actually, you can actually show that by doing all this, you can actually get back to almost normal. In fact, we are, I would say by the fall, we'll be back to, to normal unless yeah. something happens. But yeah. Yeah, no, um, I, I would say it was not luck. I would say that it was um, high intelligence care um and and meticulous planning and and i just want to say because i know we've reached the end of time 
thank you, David, for you and all the team that your work has done and for really showing us the way out of managing this pandemic by your wonderful and excellent example of COVID mitigation at the University of Arizona. It's been a pleasure and a privilege to interview you today. Thank you very much for the invitation. Happy to do it. And uh, please join us next week for episode nine, SARS-CoV-2 is Airborne Part One with Professor Jose Luis Jimenez. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of COVID-19 The Answers. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, rate and review and do visit our website kajalamedical.com forward slash COVID-19 The Answers. Thank you.